Hi everyone and welcome to the Prototypes Podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire more people to create great product experiences. My name is Margarida and I'll be your host today. Today my guest is Melissa Perry. Melissa is one of the most respected leaders in product management today. She is most known for her book Escaping the Build Trap. She has also created two online schools for product management, Product Institute and CPO Accelerator. She also taught in Harvard product management and she has an extensive curriculum that we'll discuss in this conversation. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. I'm so happy to have you here and also happy that you are going to be in the Broadcast Conference this year to prepare for this podcast. Um, I was reviewing your CV and I saw that you work in Barclays as product manager and software developer. You moved to the startup world where you start working also as a PM and you did this before it was cool <laughs> to be in the startup. Then you also worked as lead product designer. Uh, you lived in Italy where you experienced being a founder. You then created your own educational company for teaching PM and uh, CPOs uh, how to do CPO. <laughs> so, and the, finally you wrote Escaping Build Trap, that is the work that you are most well known for. So well, when I was reviewing this, all of this, the question that popped up in my mind was, what do you like to do in your free time when you have it? <laughs> so yeah, free time is uh is hard to find sometimes, but but I do um I kill myself just as much as I do at work in my free time too because I like to renovate houses. <laughs> so yeah. I do a lot of I like you, you can see um for those listening I'm, I'm in my office and I've done all the renovations on this office myself. I built like a Murphy bed and. I've built custom bookshelves over here and put all this like shiplap on the walls. So I do a lot of trying to figure out how to keep my house from falling apart. And that was because I hired awful contractors. So then I, I have this need when I feel like if I, if I can't find good people to do things, I'm like, I got to figure out how to do it myself. So I've learned how to do plumbing and electric work and construction and woodworking, all of the above. So, um, that is what I what I get sucked into when I'm not working. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, that's that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> and if you build what's behind you, I am very very impressed. It's a beautiful blue hole. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> good start. Uh, yeah. I'll, like also like when you're reviewing your, your everything that you've done, I was also quite surprised that you have these three experiences of being a designer software engineer pm founder it's like the yeah you did everything um so like maybe what the question that i'll ask is a bit hard to to answer but uh, what from this experience what were the experience that you learned the most or the one that you would highlight as um a turning point for you yeah um yeah it's it's strange because i have done all the roles and it's funny because i think sometimes people like to get in arguments with me when I talk about product management and they're like, we have to worry about the developers. And I'm like, I know I was a developer. And we're like, you know, UX design is X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I was a UX designer for a very long time. I, I was in charge of all the UX design actually for 
for probably the first three to four years of my career, because nobody told me there was a difference between a UX designer and a product manager. And when you work at a startup, uh, you find that that becomes kind of a hybrid role sometimes. And especially back, back then, um, I was at the startup in, in, I was at a couple startups in like the early 2010s. So that was, you know, that's what we did. Like, uh, we didn't have like super formalized roles yet. So I was always a hybrid product manager, UX designer. Uh, I ended up being a developer because I had, I had been a product manager and a UX designer um, for Capital IQ, and I had learned it there. And then I found out my roommate at the time in New York was making like double my salary as a software engineer. And I was like, oh, I can code. <laughs> like, I, 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 like I learned it in school. I can code. And I could. I could code not very well. I could code decently well and enough to pass all the like the interviews on algorithms and databases and how we do all that um, for getting the job at Barclays. So I went to Barclays more because I thought I wanted to be a software engineer. Nobody knew what product management was. I would tell people like, Hey, I'm a product manager. And they're like, a what, um, all over New York, like back in the day. And there wasn't a lot of startups in New York at the time. There was a couple there, but, uh, we, you know, it wasn't really flourishing. So I ended up being a software engineer for a year at Barclays. I hated it. I was one, a really bad software engineer. So I learned one to play to my strengths and not try to learn things that I wasn't quite good at. Um, but I, it, it was also a different like place to be a software engineer. If you're in a high growth company or in a, in a SaaS company, or even a startup, like where I ended up, right. Uh, software engineering, you do, you do so much of it, but like my role at Barclays was kind of like backend it. So I was in this massive organization, right? And this is during the financial crisis. So like back in like right up post 2008, this is right after it. Um, and I was, you know, just kind of a cog in a machine and I didn't love that. And I felt like everybody was trying to find things for me to work on rather than letting me work on impactful things. So I got very bored and I weaseled my way back into product management. And at the time, my boss told me, he's like, you can't be a product manager at Barclays unless you've been here for seven years. And I was like, no, I'm very strong headed <laughs> and I don't like rules sometimes. So I was like, I'm going to do both. I'll just, I'll do, I'm going to go talk to all the traders. We built like the platform for Barks FI on the trading floor. And I would go talk to the traders and figure out what they needed and then come back and build it. So I ended up just kind of like stepping back into product management. And when my year was up at Barclays. Um, it was like, you know, in a contract where I didn't want to pay back my signing bonus. I started looking around for other jobs and I got an offer from Amazon. And at the time they called it a product manager too, but their product management was more like doing Adobe products, like pricing Adobe products. Right. And mm -hmm. that was going to be my role. So it was either move to Seattle and do that or go to this small startup, be employed number. I think I was like 35 at open sky and be a product manager again. And the CTO of Capital IQ had become the CTO at Open Sky. And he was like, just come do for me what you did there. Um, we need some structure, we need to do this. And that's how I ended up there. So I came back into product management, UX design. And then I always kind of flip-flopped between, do I wanna be a designer or do I wanna be a product manager? Once I learned those were two different things. But for the first two years, no, like while I was there, plus my time at a Capital IQ, nobody told me they were different. And then we hired a head of UX and I didn't do the design anymore. So then I went to be a product designer at Conductor because I was like, I want to do the design. And then they were like, oh no, but you can't do the product now. You got to mm -hmm. do just the design. So I've always been in these weird spots. Um, so I can empathize a lot with people who are out there talking about 
you know, these wars kind of between designers and product managers and developers, because like I have, I have done them all. And I think it's given me really good insight into how it all works. Um, and that's one of my biggest takeaways from trying it all. Like I now gravitate towards, you know, obviously product management, but I have like a real strong affection for UX and I did it for many, many years. And when I first started consulting and freelancing, people didn't want product management help. So I did freelance UX design as well. So I did a bunch of like doing the designs myself. So I, I've been in the weeds there. I've been in the weeds in product management. I've done the development piece and I can empathize a lot with everybody who's out there. And that, that taught me to really, you know, listen to people, see where they're coming from. And it also taught me, I think, to be a better product manager because I can understand how design works. I can understand how engineering works mm -hmm. now. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to go be a designer or an engineer to be a great product manager like I did. I just happened to, that was just my path. Mm -hmm. But I do think it helped me really understand that gamut. And when I started transitioning more into leadership roles and when I started going out on my own, it really helped me get a very good understanding of how the entire technology um, sector worked in companies. Like how do we build products well end to end? Yeah. And after that, I did have to learn more about the sales pieces and the marketing pieces and, and that, which I, which I'm pretty good on up to speed on now, but it really allowed me to have very good breadth and depth on the, how, how we build good software and all the yeah. components involved. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you kind of let's start on the base of the pyramid and you did all of them. And then you started like understanding like the other roles that form this PM position that is like yeah. everyone around it. <laughs> yeah. And our, when I started in product management too, and I think this is a hot topic that we're kind of talking about now, like how businessy should product managers be? Mm -hmm. um, I did not come from an agile background. I actually came from a, a waterfall background. Like we at Capital IQ, we did very, like, I, I talk about this in my talk and it's keeping the bill trap, but we made really big specification documents, right? Like and threw them over the wall to the engineers. I didn't walk, work with the engineers. I was friends with them, but like, I didn't work with them super closely at Capital IQ because we were more waterfall. And it wasn't until I got into the startups that we started to work more agile, but we didn't do like an agile transformation or anything like that. It was just more of like, how do we work more collaboratively together? So when I came into that startup, when I came into open sky, my goals, when we started to actually put down really good goals, um, we're always tied to the business. Like my job was always to either increase retention or help us um, ship products faster or make it more efficient for people to do their jobs within the organization or um, to bring in more revenue and sell more products, right? Like that, that was always tied to our work. So we were always pretty business-minded in the way that we did product management, which I think was great. And um, sometimes you see people get super sucked into the technical components of it. And I still like worked with the engineers on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I, I love working with engineers. I think it's, it's like one of my favorite parts of the job mm -hmm. um, and designers. And like, I just like working with those teams, but we still had like such an outward focus of like, are we, are we being successful? Are we moving it forward instead of just like me feeding the engineers and my engineers had like a lot of really great experience and ideas. They would come up and be like, Hey, I think we should like consider building this. And I'm like, great. That's a fantastic idea. Like I, I don't need to come up with all the ideas. Like, mm -hmm. uh, that's a great idea. Let's, let's go out, let's test it. Let's prove it. And we were, we were doing experimentation. We were doing a lot of hypothesis testing there. So that, um, that unique experience, I think really helped and being able as well to like play all those 
roles, not that I wanted to, but like <laughs> the fact that I could and jump in really helps in super small companies, like, you know, 35 people, because, uh, one thing like we didn't have at open sky was any data for a very long time. And it was mm -hmm. stuck in MongoDB. So if I wanted data to see if things were working, I actually had to go learn how to do MongoDB. So I did that. Mm -hmm. And then I pulled it all out. We eventually dumped everything into like SQL so that I could actually run reports on it. I needed to learn SQL for that, um, which I didn't know before going in there. But, uh, you know, when you're thinking about moving, like whether you want to go big company versus small company, especially as a product manager, the more you can dive in and do things and be impactful really helps in smaller companies. Whereas in larger companies, we have more specialized roles and that's what you see in more scale-ups and more, um, you know, enterprise companies is you might not be doing all of those things. Cause we typically have more infrastructure. We have data accessible for people and, yeah. and those types of things. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, you'll need less, uh, like uh, be everything in a scale, yeah. in a scale up a corporate yeah well, we'll get there we, mm -hmm. when we discuss the build up um escaping the build trap like uh how these big companies can uh, escape and actually you can uh, go there so um well in your book escaping the build trap you as um, you said that like you have these companies that are stuck in the output mode uh, whereas they should be focused on the outcome or like the value that they deliver throughout with their product. Um, so yeah, so my first question to you is like, how does a company get there, gets to this Into awful the place? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Cause I do think most companies will end up in the build trap at one, one point or another, even the most successful companies you see out there, like great example, Netflix. Netflix has been stuck in build trap twice, at least I'm sure many more times, but two that are public. And, uh, if you look at what Netflix did, what happened was the, the first one that they did was quickster where they got stuck in the build trap. They decided, Hey, while we're looking at streaming and DVDs, let's split into two companies and we'll charge one for DVDs and one for streaming back in the uh, early two thousands. People hated that. They went nuts. They suffered massive cancellations. Uh, they got all the bad press in the world. It's like one thing to get bad press, but they had massive cancellations. Like people were furious that they were taking away this bundle of DVDs and streaming because things weren't super ripe for streaming. And their business was kind of 50 streaming, 50 DVDs. And people saw the value because they didn't want to just watch streaming. At this time as well, you didn't have the um, ability to watch the, uh, the, the shows and the movies that you would get through Netflix on your TV. So remember streaming is like on an internet enabled device in the early 2000s, that's your laptop. Like how many people wanna watch a show with their family on a laptop? Not a lot. So people mm -hmm. were furious because they still relied on DVDs to get that experience. So they quickly backpedaled, apologized, got rid of Quickster and then went back on track. Second time this happened is because of this problem where people could not watch movies on the, um, besides on their laptops or their computers, they said, how do we get an internet enabled TV, right? Like how do we actually make it so that they could stream it on there? So they started to build hardware and they started to build this device that you could plug into your TV and stream your uh, TV shows from the Netflix laptop, you know, from their laptop in Netflix all the way up to your TV. So they started building that and they called it Project Phoenix. And then right before they launched, and I'm, I'm talking like they spent like a year building this thing, right? Hold, hired a whole hardware engineering team spent a shit ton of money on it. Like just like all of these things to do this. 
And then the day before they launched, they pulled the plug. Why? Yeah. Right. Like nuts. And they pulled the plug because they realized that they didn't want to be a hardware company. If they had gone into hardware and they were primarily software, they would never be able to partner with people who did the hardware to actually put out more and more shows. So now they're changing who they're competing with. They're no longer just competing with like Sony and the TVs and stuff like that. They're competing with anything that's an internet enabled device, like iPads, other stuff like that. Right. So they said, really, we should do more of a partnership model because if we partner with people, we're going to be able to focus on what we're good at, which is software and content. There was, they didn't do content creation yet, but like software, and then we will be able to get onto things faster. So they killed it. And then six months later, they were on the Xbox and they had 1 million people streaming to their TVs mm-hmm. within six months, right? After spending a year doing this. So you might look at this and say like, hey, that's a failure. They spent all this money. Like, should they have realized that earlier? Yeah, it would have been great. But like, at least they realized it in time. And by saying, no, we're not going to focus on the things that we're, we're not used to or the things that we don't have capabilities to do. They said, I'd rather kill this thing and stop it before it becomes live and puts us down this path of doing things that we're not good at and then make sure that we're really focusing on our core. And that's what the CEO did. He came out and he said, like, all those things really distracted us. There's a great like article on it. He said they didn't help us and they actually marginally hurt the brand and the business. But by really coming back and focusing on what you're good at, limiting your work in progress and really looking at what, what is going to make your customers happy and what your core value proposition is, that's how they win. And that's mm-hmm. what the build trap is. It's basically getting bogged down, trying to build everything, right. Instead of building the right things that are right for your customers and your business. So a lot of companies do get stuck there. And the reason is because they go, you get into this growth mode, right? where you're like, I got to scale. I got to come up with more ideas. I got to do more. I got to do more. And people start to associate doing more with shipping things. Right. Uh, and they associate like this kind of linear progression, I would say between value and the number of items you ship. So they go, Oh, if we ship hundred features, we get hundred times value. And that's not true. Right. Because not everybody is going to find all those features valuable. And if you're not doing the work beforehand to make sure that the right things to ship, you're just wasting your money. So that's what the bill trap is, is just this kind of notion that all we are really looking at is outputs and outputs measure progress. And that's not the case because really outcomes is what tells us if our business is successful or if we're going to be successful at the end of the day, or if our customers are really happy. So that's what we really should be looking at to make sure that we don't get bogged down, just shipping a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yes. And uh, for those that have experienced being a PM shipping products, removing products is much harder than launching them. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's because you then will have like, uh, these uh, retroactives of people that still use it or then like you are in a very tricky situation if you want to yeah. delete it. Yeah. And if you don't do it correctly, like I do believe in like rolling down products that are unusable and I think we should do that. But if you don't do it well and you roll down things that are kind of like marginally used, you will get backlash, right? Like it will, it will not be good for people. So you have to be, I think it's better to think twice about what you launch 
rather than to launch everything and roll it back once people are actually using it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's it's a ton of work after to to roll back. Yeah. Well, you we give a you give advice on your book about how to escape the build trap and uh, like you said this let uh, previously before you wrote the book you were training these PM teams mm -hmm. about how to do to work properly to not be in the build trap. Um but then when you left the things were back to normal yep. and uh, this it came out to the conclusion that this was not just a product management problem in the role itself but also in the strategy and the organization of the entire company so mm -hmm. yeah you advocate that things need to change from the top down everything yep. um why? why why is it needed this like complete massive change to to escape something that uh, is so simple to explain. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's because we get into this like mindset, right. Where we're really looking at outputs. And I think it's actually, it's a hard shift culturally to make, because if you are measuring outputs, first of all, measuring outputs is really easy. You can just be like, I ship something check. Right. And it feels good. Like I like checking off a task list. I have like a to-do list. I love to check it off. And we get into that mindset in organizations and a lot of leaders will look at it too and be like, as long as we're shipping, we're producing value, right? That's what they think instead of looking at the outcomes. And the reason that we don't look at the outcomes is because they're lagging indicators, right? They don't actually happen until after we ship something and something produces, but there is a way to like mitigate that. And that's kind of what I talk about in the build trap. And this is where good product management really comes in and why it needs to be holistic. If you just have team members getting really good at, let's say like doing the product management pieces with the team, like delivering products, uh, you're not really making sure if those products are the right thing to deliver. Now they might be testing features. And this is what would usually happen when I go into an organization, they'd be like, oh, I'm working on this feature. I want to make sure it's good for the customers. And we go out and that feature had already been subscribed to. We already said like, we're building that feature. We'd go out, we'd talk to the customers. Um, they would do some usability tests. You can make it look really great and then you ship it and then nobody uses it. And the reason you ship it and nobody uses it is because there wasn't really a problem there to begin with. And the organization is not aligned around what problems are you actually solving? And that's why one of the pieces that you really need to get out of the build trap is a good strategy. And what strategies should be doing in organizations is prioritizing which problems we want to solve because we've done some research. Um, we've talked to customers, we've done a bunch of analysis, we've looked at all the data inside of our organization, we've looked at the markets, we've looked at everything, right? And we decided that the best bet for us as an organization is to focus on these three problems, let's say, right? It doesn't have to be three, but these few problems. And that's what we're going to align the teams around. So instead, what typically was happening in these organizations I'd go into is that the leaders would come up with a solution. Um like on the top of their heads or just looking around and saying, Hey, I think that would be good. And then dictating it down to teams. They weren't focusing on the problems and they weren't validating the problems themselves. So there was no strategy. It was just basically like a large vision for a corporation or a company. And then it would be like, go do it. And then the teams would just be building a bunch of stuff, but none of it really aligned. And what was happening was leaders were getting really frustrated. And I still see this today. Like leaders get frustrated because they go, I don't know if my teams are actually like good. And I'm like, what does good mean? They're like, well, we haven't been making like more money. So like, what are they doing? And you go to the teams and you find out 
teams are working their butts off. They're going crazy. They're like, you know, working 80 hours a week, but there's no strategy. So like, of course the needle's not going to move because you're not aligning what all the teams are doing back towards what the metrics are that you want to move. And that's a really big issue, I think, for the build trap. And that's why we need really good strategy. And once you have that strategy, now the teams can take a problem and then go validate that problem, figure out what's the right solution around that problem, and then commit to solving it. So that kind of aligns everybody up and down in that way. And that's why the product management role is so key in these organizations, because we are the people who are helping to prioritize which problems to solve make sure that they're the right problem and doing the analysis that I just talked about around which problems should we be solving? And then making sure that it's going to scale through software. And mm -hmm. that's the like key with the product management role. It's not to like dictate what tech we're building, but we are the ones who sit there and go, you know, let's work with the engineers and talk about like, are we building a platform? Is it an API over here? Like what's going to like, how do we leverage technology to make value for our users? Like what kind of workflows do we need? What kind of things do we need? And then we work with the team to make that happen. Right. So that's why the product management piece, I believe is really critical to nail, to get out of the build trap. It's not the only piece needed. It, you can have great product managers. You could still be stuck in the build trap. For example, you could have sales just like dictating down what to build mm -hmm. from the customers. And if there's no um, pushback from leadership, if there's no you know, willingness to actually make that change. You can have the best product managers in the world. And I've seen this again, and they'll be so frustrated because they're just like, I want to do my job well, and I can't because I'm just getting handed things that we've committed to with our clients. So it's a pretty systemic thing and it manifests in every organization a little bit differently. And I do think there's a big difference as well between like SaaS companies or software native companies and companies that have been going through agile transformations about where when they get stuck in the build trap but I will say both of them do. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not like this is only for corporations. This is, you know, it's, it's for both sides of the coin and nailing your product management and really focusing your team on like the right problems to build is the key for both of those things to get out of it. Yeah. 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 And I kind of have the feeling that especially big companies, like uh, they, like it might be harder to they might be uh, reluctant to do this change because it's much harder so oh, yeah. my question to you like have you seen uh corporates uh doing this trans transition successfully yeah there's a lot of them that are making some really good progress i work with i work with every size company um i've done a lot of really large agile uh transformations i've also done a lot of saas uh, growth stage transfer, not transformations, but like help them with product management. I hired like a lot of CPOs and put that in place. I've seen a ton of SaaS growth stage companies make this transition really fast, a year, year and a half, boom, mm -hmm. everybody's moving, everybody's grooving. You put the right leader in place. You've got um, a product that's good and just needs some help. You can, you can turn it around so fast and that's super, super exciting with large corporations. It takes a lot longer. And I always tell them that. It's like, it's a journey, but I have seen really, really good progress from a lot of companies that I have been working with for a long time. Like I think capital one has made extremely good progress, um, you know, with their product managers, with, uh, really getting, getting out there and validating their problems and making themselves a super core player in the banking industry and their technology and their products speak for themselves. If you're out there using their products, you're like, wow, this is great. Like they automated away um, the need for travel 
notifications. Let's say you had to use to call up and do the banks. They were one of the first people to do that using AI, trying to make it simpler for people to just transact with it. And I think that ethos really was helpful um, to, to making that transition at Capital One. And I think they're doing a fantastic job. Um, with corporations though, too, like really large ones, no matter what, they're, they're so big that sometimes every division operates very differently. (laughs) And what you will see in corporations is that one division might be nailing it. And then like other ones aren't even there yet. They're not, they don't even have product managers. They're not even talking about it. Right. So you see this all the time in really large corporations where you're like, okay, that division is great, but then the other divisions don't have as much product management. And usually it's because you've got a leader that came in from the outside maybe, or was just really, maybe not even, maybe they just got promoted and they really wanted to make this change and they saw the value in it and they committed to it. And I do think it takes really good leadership to push this kind of change and champion it across the company, across the company. Um, there's another, like, uh, Adiba Sabu is a VP of product over one of the, the B2B arm of Fidelity Investments and like his team doing great. Like he's done, he's really committed. He came in there and he committed himself. He's been there for a while, but like he committed himself to making this transformation and he did it very successfully in that, in that pocket. So I do think there's a lot of really good work that corporations have been making, um, over time and these really large ones, but you have to understand, like, it's a, it's a totally different animal to transform a 300, 400, 500 person company. I did it. I did 5,000 people at Athena health. Like, and it's different than doing a 47,000 person mm-hmm. company. So we, everything always takes a little bit longer in the larger companies, but I do see some really good shifts. There was one company I've been working with for a very long time and they, uh, you know, in the financial services sector as well. And they started from a real need, like a, gra- like a grassroots need to do agile and lean. And they were doing it in pockets. It wasn't really like sticking flash forward, like, I think it's been six, six years now that I've been like in and out, like I haven't been there consistently, but in and out working with them. And they, they had their epiphany. They did a bunch of work and their leaders are like, we're committed. Like we want, we now want this product management thing. And at the leadership, they're having the conversations about, do we hire a CPO over this, you know, tens of thousands person company? Um, how do we make sure our product leaders are set up? How do we do product strategy? So they, they see it and they see it gradually coming out and they're making really, really good progress on there. And I'm, I get very excited when I see corporations do that because it's not an easy journey and it's not a short journey. All Mm -hmm. of this takes like so much time and it's piece by piece. And I could see where it's frustrating for some people. Cause I get written in to like my podcast too, all the time about like, uh, what do I do? I'm in this corporation and doesn't want to change. And, you know, I, I see the frustration and I've been frustrated. Like I've been in trying to get people to change for the last six years. And I I've learned by doing that, that sometimes it just takes time to like move, you know, it's the difference between moving an oil tanker and moving a sailboat. Like some things are a little bit faster in smaller companies. Um, you don't have as much politics. You don't have as much history sometimes too. Uh, you can usually hire like a great leader and it's just like, boom. And if the, the rest of the C-suites on board and you got somebody who knows how to like yeah. go with it, you're good. But then training a whole corporation that's doing a transformation, it's going to take longer, but I do think mm-hmm. they can get there. Cause I've seen really good results from a lot of places. I just think it's going to take a little bit longer than a typical yeah. small company. 
And in these large corporations, um, do, do you use the same uh, uh, team organization as in a as in a startup style? So like not the same, but like do you work like in squads with the PM? Yep. And then okay, you so still... the PM keeps close to is still close to yeah. the designers and the engineers, and that's outside key to yeah. success. I do, I do think that. So one thing I think corporations struggle with is I think they have just too many people working on a lot of stuff. And sometimes that's hard to say because people are like, oh, my job, which I get. But I've seen I've seen places that have like 10,000 developers working on 800 different applications and nobody knows what those applications are. Like nobody's actually looked at all of them and said, what problem do these things solve? And so what happens is they duplicate stuff and they find work to do right? They find, <laughs> they find things that people should be working on to keep people busy instead of saying, Hey, actually let's do an inventory of everything we have, set the product strategy, go back down, simplify this into a platform or a couple applications or like, you know, make sense of this portfolio and then decide where we want to invest and what we should be investing in. And then you build the team structure up from there. Mm -hmm. um, and that might mean just shifting some people around. It might mean letting some people go. But at the same time, I'm trying not to advocate for like massive layoffs. Please don't do that. But, uh, but what happens is instead they start, they see like little problems and they throw people at it, right. Instead of trying to solve it from a holistic or a systemic place. And that's where I see corporations get stuck. And then it's really hard. It's so hard to build like a product strategy for 800 applications, like in one, and that's one division that I saw mm -hmm. this in, right? One division of a massive corporation with a hundred thousand people. Like, like, so now we've got 10 more divisions to go through, right? That that's a huge undertaking. So this is like, it's not, it's not easy, but at the same time, those teams that are working on those applications still need to be set up with product managers, designers, and developers. If you are only doing backend stuff and there is no user interface, you don't need a designer, that's fine. Um, if there is a user interface, you do need a designer. Uh, then you will go up the structure and the structure for product management stays very much the same in a small company versus a large company, except how you think about um, where, how you structure people around applications is usually very similar. There's a couple different methodologies for it. But then also like when you get to the leadership team. And I would say, if you're in a very large corporation where you feel like you can get leverage between the business lines. So that's like, um, let's pretend we're a bank and we've got retail banking, commercial banking, some, you know, uh, a bunch of these different banking sectors. Mm -hmm. You feel like sharing data across all those banks and knowing about the customers because they might buy different data is important. Then you should think of yourself almost like a platform. And what you're going to want to do is have some kind of chief product officer across the whole company talking about how that all comes together and what we should be thinking about and how we should be leveraging different technologies to make that happen and what that platform looks like. And then prioritizing what's the most important pieces of trying to connect all those things, right? Mm -hmm. so it's kind of almost like a platform CPO type person. If you are never going to share data between those things, or it's just not important, then you can go inside and have like a head of product, even like a CPO, depending on how big the business line is for each business line, creating individual strategies, but knowing that you won't come together. And there are some corporations like that, where you just have more of like this overall brand, but there's not a lot of business going between the business lines. So 
I think that's a big issue for a lot of corporations out there right now is trying to figure out what to do with that leadership level today, because they don't know if they want to be one giant company, right? That all that leverages data everywhere and becomes more powerful that way. Or if they're just going to operate like separate businesses and they run all differently. I've seen, I've seen some corporations run like one big company and I've seen other ones run like 18 different independent companies. And I think you just have to decide what's your value for your customers. There's no right way to do it, but what's your value for your customers? And do we actually produce more value if we all talk to each other and we all mm -hmm. share things? And that's yeah. when you're going to have to bring the strategies together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and talking about uh, the CPO role and the need of uh, product uh, leadership in companies, uh, you also wrote this article, um, I think it was two years ago, but it was like about predictions that you did in 2012 about product yeah. management, uh, and they turned all to be true. So, and you wrote at that time, like the CPO role would become like massively important and companies market will somehow realize that but then we will have this bunch of people that never did cpo and uh, work with uh, the c suits that don't know how to do it so well my question is what what is the cpo role and how it does it differs from the product management roles like before the cpo yeah so the cpo role the chief product officer role is basically the highest role in product management. And when you think about what a chief product officer does versus a head of product in the US, we call them VPs of product. Um, in, in Europe, I hear head of product, doesn't really matter. Sometimes you have head of products acting like a CPO, but if I'm gonna say there is a VP in this organization and there's a CPO, let's take that for instance. The difference is that a CPO actually is extremely more commercially minded than sometimes a VP. What I tend to see with heads of product and VPs of product is they are fantastic at doing the product management. They can roadmap like crazy. They can train all of their product managers. They can organize their teams. They can get the processes in place for them to like do what they need to do to work with the engineers. They're like usually pretty good at like working with sales and like setting up systems and stuff like that. Where they lack is the commercial aspect and the business aspect and bringing those financials back into the product. So what CPOs typically do is they go out there and they say, hey, if we want to grow three times next year, um, let's get together as a leadership team. So they bring the whole C-suite together and say, where are we gonna prioritize our growth? And then the conversations turn to, are we going up market? And then the CPO is looking at what would we need to do to go up market? Like, do we have security in place? And then they're working with the CTO to be like, that's a huge lift for a system or that's, that's actually possible. We can do this. And they're helping people prioritize from a software perspective. You know, how do we think about driving the business forward with our software? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of financials actually involved in that. You have to do a ton of modeling as well, which I think is a really key skill for um, CPOs is being able to do some financial modeling and, and scenarios, right? Like if we roadmap this way, how much um, annual recurring revenue can we unlock within the next six months versus for mapping a different way? And how does that affect our capacity plans? So they're bringing in a lot more data on that level. They're also really good at working with the board and explaining what we're doing in a way where the board understands it, which is those financials. So it's not, hey, here's our roadmap and here's a bunch of features we're going to launch. They're saying, 
we're prioritizing going up market first. Here's the first segment. We're going to launch in Q1. Q1 should open us up this much, Sam. We'll be able to make this kind of recurring revenue within one year. That's going to hit us onto their growth rate this way. At the same time, we're reprioritizing this platform play over here. We have to merge these two platforms together that we put in the merger. So we're going to roll one down eventually, but nobody will notice on the customer end. That will be good because it will allow us to be eight times faster with development, which will unlock us for these next things, right? Like they're explaining how all of this goes together. And they're usually translating what those technology implications are, working with the CTO to do this, but like translating a lot of what those technology implications are to the board and to the investors so that they understand what's going on. And also if you're in a public company to the market, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like a higher level of business acumen right, that we need. And I do think product managers should have this. I do think like we can learn this as individual contributors too. Um, and that makes that better. They're usually really great at working with the rest of the C-suite as well. So they're great at like dealing with sales and finance and everybody else. Um, they also are usually running more than just product. You see a lot of head of products that are mostly product. Sometimes they have design, but a chief product officer can oversee product design, um, product operations usually to help like streamline uh, those effects. And then sometimes in a growth stage company, we actually do roll engineering into chief product officers and they kind of become this hybrid like CPTO. Yeah. And you would typically hire like a VP of engineering over all the engineering counterparts. But we do that when the technology strategy has gotten away from the product strategy and you need one person to decide and prioritize which way to go. And if you ever let a technology strategy lead a product strategy, you will not make money. I've seen people waste millions of dollars. I had one company spend millions and millions and millions of dollars building this platform that was never adopted by the rest of the company because they didn't prioritize it against the commercial facing roadmap. So nobody was able to leverage any of the APIs or the new fun things they were building because it wasn't what they were working on and they had to get things out to customers or, or we were going to fail. So that's that's a very big concern too. So the CPOs usually have like um, more breadth to actually like take those on. They can also take on more complex portfolios. So mm -hmm. it's not just one single product line. I tend to think of a head of product or a VP of product focusing on one single product line, maybe like some adjacent things that are close, but a chief product officer can oversee a very complex portfolio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As, as you said, it's more focused on the... It kind of needs to learn the financial uh, words and how to speak with the C-suits. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and also like you, on the same article, you referred that uh, the rest of product operations as a discipline that uh, would become very prominent uh, in these years. And it's, it is very, very prominent. Uh, really like right that. now, Thank everyone you. is talking about it on LinkedIn. Uh, and you also, you'll uh, have a book about this mm -hmm. yeah uh what i don't know if i can ask this but what can we expect from the book yeah no um we are denise and i uh, my co-author are writing a book on product operations it's called product operations surprise surprise um <laughs> and we are trying to lay out how one we have a bunch of case studies in there about how companies are doing it so that's very exciting i'm uh, finishing up a case study right now and um we're trying to outline for people how they should think about product operations and what they need to get started. So it's going to be very in-depth, but we're really covering like the three pillars of product operations that we see. 
And product operations in general, just to describe this, it's an enablement function. So what it's doing is it's allowing you to build products better across the company. And we do that in a couple of ways. One is by getting the right data and insights back to the teams so that they can actually measure success and inform their next steps. So there's usually um, an area that's keeping track of the success of your OKRs that you're setting or your goals that you're setting and giving you good insights into how the company is performing. And that's so important as a leader. Like you need to know if your things are working that you're actually road mapping, but so do the product teams. So the product teams need to know, are we being successful? So usually we have that function too. It's helping to streamline getting good research into the organization. So this is about um, helping people do user research, not doing it for them. So for instance, uh, creating in some of this overlaps, I will say too, with like research ops, we've heard of this, um, if you've heard of that before, but in the absence of having a sophisticated research ops or a UX ops team or, or pull them into this, like, I don't mm -hmm. care what you call it, but you just need this function type thing. Um, you need to be able to like one, help product managers or UX designers get in touch with the customers they need to research with. Um, two, you need to make sure you're not bothering the same people every single day. So, uh -huh. so usually we create <laughs> systems to help get access to users, to make it easy. And then also things like um, repositories for research. Sometimes you have these teams out there, 60 people doing research and nobody's ever talking about it with the other people. So you duplicate research um, and never get shared. It just like goes away. So building repositories for that. Um, and then same with market research, right? Enabling them, enabling product managers to understand how to calculate TAM and SAM or doing it for them or um, helping them be able to access market research reports so that they can keep on uh, on top of what's going on and how they fit into the market and really look at that. So that's the second pillar. Third one is governance um, and planning. And this one is really about, and process as well, but this is about streamlining the product management process throughout the organization. So one that helps with us building a product operating model and the product operating model should say things like, when do we review product strategy? How do we communicate product strategy? Um, how do we make sure that product strategy is going well, right? And that's where some of those data and insights come in. It's about like, um, you know, doing your annual planning. Uh, it's also about making sure that the teams are working uh, consistently together so that like sales knows how they fit into the pipeline, marketing knows how they fit into the pipeline and we're, we're putting things back out to them so that they know what's coming. It's about road mapping. It's about, um, it's, there, there's a lot involved in this piece, but it's really about streamlining those things so that everybody's working consistently and then the value of product management skills. Yeah. Uh, the other piece I forgot about too in the, in the research part is also making sure that data we have internally about our customers gets back to the product management team. Cause a lot mm -hmm. of times it's just locked in like Salesforce, like sales has great notes on what customers want and they never make it to the product team. Like yeah. we never know who's doing this or who's doing that. So it's like getting that to the right people so that they can be informed. So they also do this, uh, maybe stakeholder management with the teams and go around and ask them and the yeah. backlog all of these and give them to the PM. Yeah. So okay. like uh, Stripe was a good good example that we write about in the book. Blake Samick uh, was the head of operations, head of product operations at Stripe. Um, and one of the first things that he did was help build the bridge between sales and um, and the customer feedback mechanisms, right, into products so that people knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, so they built like systems in place to make sure that that scaled and automated to help equip the product managers with the right information so that they could go out and do it. So yeah. 
that's really how I see product operations. And the book will also go into how to set up the teams and how to think about hiring and stuff like that. But it's really designed to help people get a very broad, it's 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 a very long book, but like um a, a broad view of what product operations is and then help you identify where do you want to start. And when should companies start thinking about uh, incorporating this role in these teams? Uh, you want to do it when you're scaling. When you're when you're small, you um, one should be always thinking about getting the right data and infrastructure. So I think that should start early. But two, if you're going to say like, when should I do my first product ops hire? Um, we typically say maybe around like 10 product managers, six to 10 is like when you want to start to look at it. It's really when communication starts to break down and it becomes hard to keep on top of everything as you look around the organization and say, hey, like, oh my God, we have so many people here. How do I make sure all this is going? And you want to make sure you do it earlier rather than later because mm -hmm. otherwise it's going to get away from you and it's going to be harder <laughs> to sift through it. But the ones, the, the companies who start early, hire like one person, get those things going, they can scale this very effectively and it's not like a huge lift to, yeah. to then be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, let's travel a bit to the present and the future. So um, there is this large trend in the PM world about Airbnb being, uh, I mean, some people say it's deleting, removing the PM role. Most yeah. people don't say that's true. They are just uh, merging the PM role into a more business role. Uh, and uh, well, it, there is this trend in the market to shift from PM versus business to P PM and product management is business. Uh, so can you expand a bit more on this? I know you wrote an article on LinkedIn, but if yeah. you could give us some ideas. I think this comes, I think what you're seeing right now and why there's so much talk about this in the industry, not just from Airbnb, I think we've been talking about this for a while, but Airbnb was the first one to come out and say it. Um, what happened during agile transformations is that we put a lot of product owners out there into the market and the product owner role became very narrow and it became like feeding the developers and writing user stories. And it was a purely technical function. And you found that a lot of people were not thinking about the business at all. And what the shift is basically doing, I think is getting us back to what good product management is, because like we have always sat in between the business tech and customers, right? Like that, that's what product management is. But I think what happened was when all the scrum training came on the market, we forgot about that a little bit. And what they were teaching people to do kind of forgot about the business. It was very customer oriented and it was very tech oriented, but it was not business oriented at all. And good product management is about balancing all three, right? Like really like making sure that you comprehend that. Now, the reason this is becoming such a hot topic, I think is just by the changing landscape and the nature of businesses. Product management came out of many, you know, it came out of agile, which was like software things, but that's not where product management started. So where product management started really was from, you can be traced back to this brand men memo from the, I think it was like the forties from Procter and Gamble, which was a consumer packaged goods product. And so they, they make like toilet paper, right? So you had a, <laughs> you had a product manager who was over the, the Charmin line. I don't know if they make Charmin, but uh, like, like they're over the toilet paper line. Right. And they're trying to figure out how do I make the best toilet paper ever? If you think about that, think about like where this came from and think about product marketing before we got good at software, before we had software, um, the only ways to grow your business then as a product manager was sales, marketing, 
branding. Those were the tools that we actually had. Now we have software. And what you're seeing is that the way that companies grow and scale now is through software. And that's not to say sales and marketing aren't important. They still are drastically important for a lot of these companies, but we have this tool now as a person who oversees this product to basically say, what can we do from an experience perspective and how do we manage that from a software perspective to grow the business? So I see this shift, not as like, Hey, we're getting rid of product management. I see it as going back to the ethos of what product managers really do. Mm -hmm. And that's being a business-minded person who knows their craft. Like I'm sure the people who oversaw the toilet paper lines at Procter and Gamble understood how toilet paper got made, right? And understood the manufacturing process of it and understood their, their um, margins, right? And their operations and how, like how those factories worked. We need to understand how software works, right? And you need to understand how you can leverage that to make things successful. So I see, I think what Airbnb was getting at is I don't want just a product owner feeding my developers a bunch of user stories and not connecting it back to what do we get from a business or a customer value perspective. What they want is people who are thinking about the business and how to grow the business by producing user value. And that what yeah. is what I think product management has been all along. I think that maybe it's gotten a bad name because people aren't doing that. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are not doing that because I get complained to about it all the time from like developers and designers. But I don't think that's that's a problem with the role. I think that's a problem with what happened, right? And how we train people in the role. And that's why I'm so invested in teaching, right? Like that's why I started my online school, like Product Institute and why I do CPO Accelerator and I was teaching at Harvard. I do it because I see people teaching product managers the wrong way, right? Yeah. They're teaching them to only care about customers and tech and not actually tying it back to the business. And I think you do need to be ruthlessly focused on customer value. And I will say that until I die. Um, when I first started speaking in like 2013, all I did was like, please pay attention to the customer because nobody was paying attention to the customer now. Now I'm like, please pay attention to the business too. I'm not saying forget the customer, but please, please pay attention yeah. to the business as well, right? Like we need to be in the middle. And the way that I think about it is you should always be focused on customer value as a company but the business metrics and how you want the business to grow helps you prioritize which problems to solve for the customer. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, hey, we're going to just do whatever helps us grow at all costs. It's more like if we want to double our revenue, and this is the reality of having outside investment and taking VC money, um, if we want to double our revenue in the next two years, here's the 18 problems we could go after to solve for customers, which ones are the right problems, right? Like that's what product management is. So it's not just ignoring the customer or what's going to be good for the customer. It's helping to prioritize that just in a way where your business can grow and be successful as well. Cause I think we have to remember, like, we're not, we're not all charities. There are some charities that listen to these things, but like, um, we're not all like charities out here. Like we do need to make money to keep the business going. So I, you do need to care about that. And that's where I see some friction between leadership and product managers is when they don't care about the business, right? Like that, that turns them off. Yeah. So I think the Airbnb thing was just so dramatic. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I like so dramatic, but I don't think they're wrong. Um, and what they're trying to, I, I don't know the details from the surface level of what I hear. Let me put it that way, because I don't want to bite my tongue in like three months when more stuff comes out about this. 
I don't think they're wrong for focusing people on the business as well mm-hmm. and reminding them to do that. But I don't think that's getting rid of the product management role. I think that's refocusing it to what it yeah. should have been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but also like the business is important, but I, I was having this conversation with Leah Taran uh, on this podcast and she really advocates that like being customer centric so if you change your metro or your kpi instead of being let's make let's uh go to this revenue let's uh, have uh, the user in the platform for one hour if you change mm-hmm. for this uh well this indirectly ties to revenue because you have customers in yeah. the platform and totally. it will um uh, prevent you from doing things like uh, so i'm going to make you the subscription really really hard for you so then yeah you know like well, being i get what you're saying um so that you won't be able to cancel it whatsoever which i hate that's like such a bad anti-pattern um so i what i say is there's different levels of goals in an organization and at the top i call them strategic intents in the product strategy usually they are business focused, right? And they are about growing revenue, but the, they're tied to how we want to grow revenue, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's not just grow ARR. Don't, it's not double ARR in two years. What it is, is it's, we want to, um, expand geographic. We want to expand geographically, which will double our ARR in two years, right? Like that's, that's what we're saying. So we want to solve problems for Spain. I don't know. Like we're, we're going into that market, right? Something like that. So you're, you're, positioning where you want to concentrate another one too. Here's a better example. Um, this is a big one for tons of companies who have this problem, which is a lot of them, especially growth stage companies. If you have your leaky bucket syndrome where people are just turning, you want to say our first priority is to, um, like shore up our retention in our current market or whatever, like whatever market you're in. Right. Um, and then you put the metrics around what that means. And then that's, saying, okay, business, this is what I want you to look at. We have to make it so that people don't keep leaving us. Now you're going to ask the question, why the hell are people leaving us? Right. And now we go into the product strategy. So the product strategy of the product managers are going to be looking at that and saying, why don't people love us anymore? Why are they leaving? And they're going to out to do the user research. And then that will produce the problems that you have to solve. So now these become the product initiatives. So let's say they're leaving you because um, you don't solve one of their major problems and they're tired of like doing it off the side of their desk. So now your product initiative would be like, um, we be- like we believe that by solving this problem for these customers, we can um, you know capture this much error or whatever. Now mm-hmm. that ties back up to the bigger goal. Now, the way you measure the success on it, putting things out piece by piece, because it's usually a large goal, right? That's going to take some time. And all of these are in time horizons. Like usually that strategic intent is like a year, a year and a half out to actually achieve. I'm not going to be able to tell you if I doubled my ARR. I said two years. So like two years out for this one. That's fine. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell if I doubled ARR in two years. There will be leading indicators though to show I'm doing it. And that's where I think the customer metrics come in. So my team is going to be focused on a metric. My product team with the developers is going to be focused on a metric that's like, um, increasing the adoption of users, uh, of this like product that we're building, right. Or the product that we're fixing. And then that's going to be like, I want them to measure that 75% of our people come into that product at least once a, you know, once a day. So that's kind of getting into what I think Leah is talking about 
I don't, I think it needs to be levels of mm-hmm. the organization, right? So like your leadership should be thinking like multiple years out. And that's why their strategic intents are broad and they're business related and they're long. Then your product leaders don't need to be thinking long-term as well. So then you're going to have a slightly shorter time span for that. And then the team should be thinking about what do we release in a quarter, in a month, mm-hmm. right? However fast you can release and have some change that ladders up and connects back into those things. But usually you can trace all of that strategy up and down. If you keep asking yourself, like, um, if I want to show up retention, why are people leaving? What's the problem I'm going to solve? Okay. How do I solve that problem? Let's go in and figure out what aspects of the problem are, you know, are worth solving. What can we do? And then you build your metrics out of there. And then you can relate them extremely closely to user metrics at the team level for sure. Okay. 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 Understood. Yeah. Uh, like I wanted to go back a bit on uh, one of the things that you said, like you were saying like the PO become this role that uh, makes, um, uh, like delivers tickets to the tech, uh, tech people and uh, like really technical. Uh, so do you believe the PO should be, so the PM should do the PO work and the strategic yeah. work as well? So the difference between a product owner and a product manager. Yeah, like my question is more like, do you believe that there should only be the PM? Yeah. Or do you also, yes. Yeah. So I think what it is, is it's different levels. So in a lot of organizations that came out of like safe agile, which I hate by the way, um, they basically said the PO sit on the team with the developers and they do all the user stories. And then a product manager sits above them and the product manager figures out what problems to solve and then tells the PO, go build this, right? And then the PO just breaks it down for the team. Uh, What it should be is there should be a product manager working with the developers on the team. They're usually gonna be focused around like a feature or a piece of a feature, right? Then you've got a director of product who would oversee multiple product managers. And then that director of product is usually focused on a very large feature set or maybe a product, depending on how big it is, right? Then above that, if you have, I mean, you could either go into a head of product or you could go into a VP of product. Let's say it's a large organization for, you know, for the sake of argument, we got a VP of product, VP of product oversees multiple directors and they're looking at the entire product, right? End to end. Then you got a CPO who's over the portfolio of all the products. So I don't think there is a PO PM difference. Um, when you look at that product manager on the team, I do think product managers need to lift themselves up a little bit and, um, trust the team to get some of that work done. So it's like, I see, I see product managers specking out and and to be fair to engineers asking for this. I don't want to like bash product product managers doing this all the time, but they're giving them so much direction on what to do and filling in every little detail when like, and they spend a lot of time writing all those tickets out and all those things. Right. And it's like, they could probably, the developers probably could fill in the gaps themselves if they felt empowered to do it or if they wanted to do it. And I do think engineers need to be willing to do that. And I know some, uh, I I get questions about this all the time. So I know some are not, and they get very upset if the product owner doesn't spec out every little tiny little thing for them. But we hire smart people to be engineers. I believe engineers are incredibly smart human beings. Um, If I give you something where I'm like, I need to make this list of people. And here's my things on the list. You should be able to know what goes in the list, right? Like, like, and, and get 90% of the way there and then come back and have a conversation. Right. So instead 
we're, we almost go back into waterfall where we're specking out everything, but we put them in user stories, right? Like it's not any different than what we did in waterfall. It's just that we're putting them in Jira and we're calling it agile. So like, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I think is happening. So if we, if we pull up, let's say, and get away from that as a product manager, what does that look like? It means that you're letting the designers and engineers figure out a lot themselves, right? But you are ensuring that the right problem is being solved. Um, you're working with designers and engineers to make sure it's being solved in the right way, but you're not spending 40 hours a week specking out user stories. Instead, you're making sure that you're doing the calculations to figure out if it's the right way to go. You're talking to the users. You're, you're working with sales and marketing to make sure they can actually sell it when it launches. And then you're coming back and you are spending a good amount of your time I'm not just saying not all of your time, but like maybe half your time working with the teams as well, but you should be outward facing and inward facing. You can't just be only team facing. And that's, that's what I think is the difference between what we hear about product owners and product managers. I do believe it should be the same role. Um, Mm -hmm. The terminology product owner owner only came out of agile. And like I said before, agile did not invent product management. They just invented a way to work better together. And a lot of people aren't doing it right. A lot of people aren't doing scrum right even. Um, And I do think when you do scrum right, it can work really well. Um, But you can tell too, uh, I love this. Like Jeff Patton talks about it a lot with like his user story mapping. Like a user story is not put a button on this page. And a lot of people treat user stories that way. So that's what I'm talking about with the levels of things. A user story is as a user, um, I want to be able to, uh, understand like who, who signed up for my course in the last six months, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's a requirement. Like a designer and developer should be able to take that and then go build something with it. Right. I shouldn't have to go through every yeah. little nitty gritty detail about what that is. Right. And instead people are getting down really low. So that that's the type of level I think, um, that we're dealing with and why we get into these arguments, I think with, um, Airbnb in places yeah. like that. So I don't think it's, it's valuable for product managers to spend all of their time specking things out in minute detail um, when the teams are pretty fully capable of doing a lot of this themselves. And I think if you build the context up front and you trust your team and you have really good communication, that can all work. Yeah, yeah. Like by doing so, the doing all specifications for them, you are removing power from them. Like they are just these monkeys that do you what yeah, you say. Monkeys. <laughs> exactly. And then, then we get into these good monkey debates and, and good engineers don't want that. Like they get upset about it. I get, I get called about it all the time where people are like, how do I get my product manager to start, stop telling me what to do all day. And it's, you know, they want to, they want to think they want to solve hard problems. They want to do right by the customer. Probably that they, they know how to do that better than PMs. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, what, what, uh, trends do you think, uh, uh there'll be in the future for product management besides this yeah. uh, uh, merge with business? Yeah, definitely that commercialization aspect. Um, I think what we're going to see big time in very large enterprises, and I'm pretty excited about this, is you're going to see a lot of companies that were not software native start to have product leaders who are both business and software related. So what's happening in those organizations is that you're starting to see that, like I said before, the means of which we were able to to deliver value before in some of these organizations, like if you take a financial institution, it was like operations. It was, it was a lot of manual work. Now it's software. And we're going to need leaders who oversee 
those business lines who understand software and the power of software. So I do think we're going to see a lot more software competent leaders in those positions in these large enterprises, which I'm pretty excited about. And I think that that GM role that we see in some of those enterprises is, start, is going to be lend itself to product management mm-hmm. um, with good domain knowledge. I don't, I, you got to have good domain knowledge for this, but I do see that emerging. And I see a lot more people talking about that lately, which is making me very excited. So I think we're going to have that. Um, I do think product management is going to be more important now than ever, because there's a couple things going on in the market. Um, less VC money to go around. Everybody's tightening their belts. Uh, so what happens when that happens? You need to prioritize. If you do not prioritize and you do not focus on the things that are going to make you money, you will not be profitable. And that's mm-hmm. why having a really strong product leader is important. Um, so I'm going to, I think it's more important now than ever. A lot of, there's been a lot of debate. I've heard this from a couple of people about how Product managers aren't important in these companies if they can't do design or engineering, like if they can't build. I think that's wrong. I think I think you need the people who can help prioritize for those people. And I don't think you can expect everybody to do everything, right? Like you can't expect everybody to do everything. But do I think we need like 8,000 product managers to do that? No, I think if we lift ourselves up to do more of the business work and to think more higher level and trust our teams and enable our designers and engineers, a product manager could probably oversee a good chunk of work that's going on until it becomes, you know, and and I'm not trying to overwhelm, but I'm just saying like, if you're not specking out user stories that are tasks really for 40 hours a week, you can actually do more, right? You can get Mm -hmm. more done. You can think more strategically. So I do think we're going to have more strategic thinking product managers going forward, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, Product ops, I think people are just getting started with it, but they're starting to see the value. The one thing I think that's really necessary about and why why I like this thread and what I'm seeing now is that in a lot of organizations, we've been solving and building tools for teams, and I'm seeing a lot more stuff come out for leaders. And that's why I like product ops as well, because I think product ops is not just for teams, it's for leaders. It's for leaders to understand how we're doing, what we're measuring. And if we do that well, we'll be able to make more strategic decisions faster. So we'll be able to like turn on a dime if you have those insights. And that is happening. I've seen a lot more companies and especially growth stage companies adopting um, more of this data to be able to be informed about what the products are doing and what the strategies are doing. And I think that's that's helping. Yeah. Um, like I said before, CPOs still on the rise. I still get hit up for people hiring CPOs every day. So I don't think that's, dampening, like dampening down at all. Um, but I do think it's, it's going to really help a lot of these companies that might be cash strapped right now. And in this, you know, if we're, we're talking recessions or whatever we're Mm -hmm. talking about, like harder times right now, it's not a free for all with money. We got to be profitable. And if you want to be profitable, you got to really double down on what you're building and why. Yeah. Well, Melissa, it's been a great, great talk with you. Uh, so we are getting to the end of our conversation, uh, and I wanted to ask you one final question, one final thought. Okay. So why should people join you at the conference uh, in October? Yeah, I have a, a new talk that I'm going to be doing for you guys, and we're going to talk a lot about product strategy and product operations. So um, definitely come and join us. Uh, we're hoping to have the book out for product operations. So if you'll be, if you come, you'll be one of the first people to get the book. So that's definitely important to come to, but 
I'll be there. I love conferences. I've missed them so much during COVID. So <laughs> I always enjoy talking to people and like walking around. So definitely come hit me up and say hi and uh, come talk about all the fun things. Cool. Well, thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>